who are uh, in children's church, uh, you can line up over here by the door, and uh, if you're not in children's church, um, you can pray for those who are, <laughs> and uh, pray for all of our teachers and for those who are involved in teaching our kids uh, each and every week on Sunday morning. And if you're, uh, if you're here still, even if you think you're a kid, uh, you can open up your Bibles to Je- Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, I know you thought we were going to be in James today, but uh, we're actually going to, this, this passage is actually going to pertain to things that we've been talking about in James, but we're going to take a little, little step back and look at a really big subject this morning, uh, the omnipresence of God. And so, uh, and you wonder what that is, well we'll find out in just a moment if you don't know, uh, <coughs> and but I want to just uh, I want to just say this morning that uh, we're, we're as we step back the things that we've been talking about in James uh, actually uh, Jeremiah twenty three puts some real practical feet to this for us this morning and so we're gonna we're gonna tackle this a bit today uh, in looking at one of the attributes of God and I want to say from the start here we're gonna do this a bit backwards um, I'm gonna talk for a while all right and then we're gonna actually stand and read the text because. Uh, we're going to talk about the omnipresence of God, which means that, that God is present everywhere all of the time. And we're going we're gonna to talk about this in a particular context of Jeremiah chapter 23 in a very particular situation that was going on in that text. And so what I want to do for us, because the text almost speaks and preaches itself. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us the helicopter view of what's going on. I'm going to give you the outline, in essence, of the text and then we're going to stand, so it'll be several minutes here, and then we're going to stand and read it together and let it, the, the words that are spoken by Jeremiah the prophet to the children of Israel and to Judah in that day, let these words sort of speak uh, the truths that I'm going to share with you right now. So does that make sense? So I'm going to set this up so that when we read it, hopefully it'll kind of perk your mind to be thinking about the things that Jeremiah would want us to think about. So today we're going to talk about an attribute of God. And there's a reason why that's really important. Uh, there, are, there are things or attributes of God revealed that God reveals himself all throughout Scripture. And there are these attributes, these characteristics of him that are absolutely crucial to us really knowing who our God is. And there are two types of attributes in the Bible. There's what's called incommunicable attributes. That may sound like a really big word. All it means is there are attributes of God that we do not share with him. There are things about God that make God, God. That we, that that makes him separate from us. Larger than us. Outside of us. And so these attributes uh, are are attributes that make him God. That make us stand in awe. that, That makes him worthy of worship. There's also what's called in the Bible communicable attributes of God. And those are things that we share in common with God. Things like love and compassion. These are things that you too can have and share with God, albeit not perfectly and not the same. But they're, they're, these are the two types of attributes that we're talking about here. And we're, not going, we're just going to talk about one of these today, uh, the incommunicable attribute of God's omnipresence. That he is present Everywhere, And today we're going to see that by remembering God's character and even this one particular attribute, it will help sustain us in the midst of 
our trials and temptations and struggles. This is what James has been talking about is going through trials and going through temptations. And where do temptations come from? How do we overcome those temptations? And today's text is going to help us wrestle with that. So let me, let me just give you a couple examples of the incommunicable. That is those things about God that we do not share. Uh, and then we'll wrestle with the omnipresence of God and we'll get to Jeremiah 23. Things like God being three in one. A Trinitarian God. That God is one God and yet exists in three persons. The immutability of God. We talked about, Pastor Nick talked about last week. That is that God is unchanging. Not like us. He's completely unchanging and perfect. He never changes his mind. The omnipotence of God. That God is all-powerful. Or the omniscience of God. The fact that God is all-knowing. That he knows everything. And then the omnipresence of God, which means that God is everywhere present all of the time. Uh, these, are, these are examples of, these aren't all of them, but just a few examples of those attributes of God that make God, God. The reason why this is so critically important for us to understand who God is and to not forget who God is, to remind ourselves constantly who our God is, is because to forget God is to, in essence, begin to live in a delusion. It's to become delusional. The definition of delusion means that we begin to live, think, and act in a way that is inconsistent with logic or reality. You know anybody like that? Ever been there yourself? Right? Delusion, none of us would ever characterize ourselves as this, but to be delusional means to think to live, to act in such a way that is out of step with logic or reality. And so in many ways, we can profess faith in God, but we can live, for instance, as practical atheists. We can believe that there is a God, that he exists, that he is powerful, and yet live our lives as if there is no God whatsoever. This would be a delusion. It's to live our lives in such a way as to think that we will never have to give an account before God, as if, we will, as if there isn't going to come a day of reckoning, as if God doesn't exist at all. I'm convinced, this is just an opinion here, but I really think that one of the things we need most in our lives, one of the, one of the things that's most important to us and most needed in our lives, what's most important to your, your ailing marriage that might be suffering this morning, is not necessarily a marriage class. What you need most for your struggling finances is not necessarily, even though these would not be bad, is not necessarily a finance class. What you need for your emotional turmoil and struggle is not necessarily a class that helps you overcome and work through those things. What you and I need most, what your marriage, what your finances, whatever it is that ails you, the balm or the salve that you need most is to see clearly and to know deeply the greatness and the glory of your God. To see him for all that he is worth. In the midst of your struggles and your sufferings and your temptations and your trials with sin and your wars going on within, what we need most is to know God, right? is to see him. All those other things are great, and they are helpful, but if you don't see clearly your God, if you forget who God is, as one author put it, if a person forgets who God is, then they will be likely to believe anything from there. 
And so today we find in the children of Israel that they had a major problem. In Jeremiah 23, they had forgotten the character of God. They had forgotten who their God was. And the main issue, the main problem was that they had forgotten in particular the omnipresence of God. That he is present everywhere all the time. Let me just give you a couple points about the nature of God's omnipresence. First of all, all the attributes of God have to do with God's infinity. The fact that he is without limits. That, in other words, there is nothing. God is not bound in this particular attribute, in his omnipresence. He's not bound by space and time. He has absolutely no limitations whatsoever. And this is beyond our comprehension, is it not? Because everything in your life and my life is bound by space and time. We have limits in every single aspect of our lives. And take all these attributes of God, and we will find ourselves having limits in every single one of them. We have knowledge, yes, but we don't have all knowledge. We, we have power, yeah, we have a certain amount of power, but we, don't, we are not all powerful, right? We, we can be present in one place or another, but we cannot be present everywhere all the time. We are bound by time. Even this service this morning is bound by time. If I go long today, you will begin to get fidgety. I can see it on you, and I'm up here, right? There's, our lives are governed by limitations in every single aspect, and this is what makes God God, and this is what causes us to stand in awe and to have a difficult time comprehending God. And in fact, this is also why human beings have a tendency to make a God in their own image. This is why we struggle as human beings with actually seeing God for who he has revealed himself to be in his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and in his infiniteness, we have a difficult time accepting him as he has revealed himself to us because we want to bring God down and make him someone whom we can fully grasp and understand and wrap our minds around, a God who is made in our own image. And so these incommunicable attributes can be disconcerting at times. And it can cause us trouble. And the only way to cure us bringing God down to our level is to pour ourselves into the scriptures and to see him and to remind ourselves continually who he is as he has revealed himself. And so God's omnipresence (coughs) is not just the fact that God is present everywhere all the time. My last point about this before we jump into the text is this. It means that all, think about this a minute, try to wrap your mind around this big thought this morning. You won't, you'll spend the rest of your life doing this, I hope. All of God, the word all is crucial in this third thing. All of God is present everywhere, all of the time. Think about that for a minute. Every attribute of God, communicable and incommunicable, you love those words, Every aspect of who God is in all of his glory is present, is present, his president, is present everywhere all of the time. There is no place in which all of God is not present. Isn't that mind-blowing? Every aspect of his life. At the end of this message today, I think, I hope to share with you and come to the conclusion of why that is so beautiful a truth for us as Christians, and such a frightening truth for those who would be rejecting and resisting God in his grace. 
So the problem in Jeremiah chapter 23 is that they had forgotten God. And that comes with some serious consequences that we'll get to in a moment. But let me just, let us just hover over this text for a minute. 40 verses, and then we're not going to read them all, but I'm going to read most of this chapter to you in a moment, but we'll, we'll get to that. But let us hover over this. Jeremiah is speaking at a time when King Josiah was reigning in Judah, which is about 627 B.C. And the reason why I bring up King Josiah, we named our son after Josiah, but uh, right, Josiah back there? He's not a king, by the way. <laughs> but uh, King Josiah was one of, the, one of the only, other than David, of actual godly kings in this, in this season of Israel's history. He's the only one. And it was a very short-lived king. He didn't last very long. And he reestablished worship and the reading of God's word in, in Judah. And yet, right after he died, the people went right back <laughs> to what they were doing before, which was rejecting God and turning to their own ways. But this is the season that Jeremiah is prophesying, and God calls Jeremiah to come to a people who were turning away from God, who had forgotten who God was, they'd forgotten the character of God, and in particular, their leaders had forgotten, which means that they were also leading the people, because so the leader goes, so goes the people, and they were leading the people to also set aside God and his word and who God is. And so Jeremiah is speaking in particular at this section to leaders, to shepherds, to prophets, to priests, to kings. And he's, he's warning them and reminding them that if they do not turn from their ways, if they do not repent, God will not let his people keep going in this direction. He will act and he will judge. And that's in fact what we know, not at this moment, but not too long after Jeremiah says these things, God in fact does allow the Babylonians to come and haul them off into exile as a result of their sin in order to bring them back in repentance and faith. And so we see here Jeremiah is this, this prophet, if you could picture it this way, he's standing at the edge of the cliff. And there are, the, the people of God are running headlong and they're about to plunge to their death. And they don't even know it. And the reason why they don't know it is because their leaders have not been proclaiming the word of God. Their leaders have not been warning them. And so Jeremiah alone is called to stand at the edge of the cliff and to holler to this people who are about to plunge to their destruction. He's saying, stop, stop, turn around. Destruction is ahead. This is what he was called to do. And God says, go and do this for my people. But he tells him, and this is why Jeremiah is considered the weeping prophet. God says, but they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen, but he says, you tell them anyway. What an amazing calling, right? Basically, he's saying to Jeremiah, your ministry from every standpoint that we could measure is going to be completely unfruitful. No converts. No one's going to turn. They're all going to keep running right past you off the cliff. But you warn them anyway. You tell them the truth. And so Jeremiah 23 is sort of the culmination of the end of this passage where Jeremiah is warning the shepherds, the prophets, the priests, and the kings of Israel. He's warning them that he's going to come and judge unless they would turn and repent. And so let me just give you the overview of this. In the first eight verses of this chapter, Jeremiah 23, we see Jeremiah, he begins with a woe, which is basically begins with judgment. He says, woe to you shepherds. 
Because you've, what, what have they done? He says, you destroy and you scatter the sheep of my pasture. And so he starts with this, this announcement of judgment upon them because they are not taking care of his sheep, of his people. And, and not only that, but in this passage, he says in verse, uh, verse 3, actually verse 2 at the end of it, he says, you have not attended to them. In other words, you haven't taken care of them. The very purpose of a shepherd is to take care of the sheep, to, to feed them and to care for them and to make sure that they're protected. And he's saying to these shepherds, you have done the opposite. You've destroyed them, you're, you're leading them to destruction, and you're scattering them. Which is the worst thing for sheep, to be scattered off the countryside and left vulnerable to their enemies. And so what does God say he's going to do? He says he's going to judge them, but even more he says, there's verse 5, he pronounces this incredible message of hope. He says that behold there are days coming. He says days are coming declares the Lord when I, God, you could when I read through this in a little bit here in a moment, you could look at all the places where God says I will. I'm going to do something as a result of this. I will. I will. I will. I was just over and over again I underlined it underlined it all over my text. And he says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That righteous branch there uh, is a passage, that, a, a, a phrase that's said several times in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, several places, chapter 4 and 11 and 32. It's also spoken of uh, in, in, the, in, I think, Joel speaks of the same phrase. Second Samuel has the same phrase. The righteous branch is ultimately referring to the Messiah that's going to come. And what, what, what Jeremiah is doing here, God is doing through the prophet, is he's showing this contrast. Here's these unfaithful, ungodly, unrighteous shepherds who are harming the sheep, but God himself is going to act one day. This is the good news. He says he's going to act one day to raise up a good shepherd, a righteous shepherd. In fact, he says his, he is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. This is Romans chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, right, where Jesus is called our righteousness, right? And so, so Jeremiah is proclaiming there's going to come a day when I'm going to act to raise up my anointed one. But every prophecy also has fulfillment in that day because he talks about the fact that all of these people who are going to be scattered to all these different places, all these different countries, Babylon, Assyria, they're going to be scattered. God, he says, one day at the end of this, these eight verses, he says, I'm going to gather them all up, and I'm going to bring them back into their land, and I'm going to establish good shepherds who are going to lead over them, who are going to be righteous shepherds. And you can actually look in the Bible, and you can see after the exile, when God begins to bring them back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah rebuilds the temple, Ezra establishes worship and the reading of God's word in the temple, what do we find? There are some righteous and holy, some good kings that come along that lead the people of God. So even in that day, there's a fulfillment, but we know ultimately, the ultimate fulfillment of this passage is the hope of Jesus, the Messiah. He is coming, and he is going to be the good shepherd, the perfectly righteous shepherd who will lead his people, who will lead us well. And he too, in that day, he will do as we are today. This is where we're at today in his, the history of redemption. He is gathering from every tribe and every tongue and every nation a people for himself, for his own possession, who have been purchased by the blood of that Messiah, by the blood of Jesus on the cross. This is our hope. And so so that he begins this message by showing this contrast and by proclaiming, look, here's where this is going. Now, can you imagine? These people could care less 
about this message. I don't know about you, but I got chills just talking about that. Right? Just thinking about what God has done on your behalf and my behalf. It blows my mind at times. And it just, it bl- you're sitting here thinking about it. And then to go, the people who heard this message from just Jeremiah, they could care less. And there may be some of you sitting here this morning who are like, ho-hum, whatever. I don't care. But Jeremiah proclaims it anyway. This is your only hope. This is your only salvation. It's in what God is going to do in sending his son. Verses 9 to 22, Jeremiah then proclaims and confronts all of the prophets and the priests and the kings, and he, he confronts their unrighteousness. And he says that he is so burdened by what he sees in the prophets. He's so burdened in verse 9 by what he sees. He says, I feel like I'm a drunken man who's stumbling around. He says, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, he says, because of the Lord and because of his holy words. Jeremiah is seeing God's true and holy word, and he's seeing what these, what these leaders are doing, and he's, he is grieved beyond measure. He's completely overwhelmed in sorrow for what is happening and in Jeremiah, so in verses 9 to 22, he, he confronts these, these prophets. He calls them out on their sin. And you'll hear it when I read it. Uh, you'll hear exactly what he's saying. And then in verses 23 to 32, he gets to the heart of the problem. The fact that they have forgotten God, and in particular, they've forgotten about his presence. And how serious and significant it is that God is a God who is present everywhere, all of him, all of the time. And lastly, verses 33 to 40, which I'm not going to read this morning, this is a danger for all of us, so you can go home and read that portion today. But in verses 33 through 40, we see the people of God mocking God in his word. This is... This is I'm always amazed when I read passages like this spoken thousands of years ago, how unbelievably real it is for us right now in our day and in any generation that's ever existed. The people of God were basically, these Israelites were basically mocking and making fun of God's oracles, the word of God. So every time Jeremiah would come and speak, right, because they're heading off the cliff, he was always speaking a very serious message, right? Right? Because they're about to go off the cliff. And so his message is always a bit heavy. <laughs> and it's always a bit, you know, serious, right? Like, stop, right? And, and so they began to look at Jeremiah and go, they, they called God's word, they called it the burden of the Lord. Oh, what burden are you bringing now, Jeremiah? What heavy thing are you going to say to us today? And they begin to mock God, and they begin to mock the reality of God's judgment and even make fun of it as if, oh, come on. Seriously, just get over it, Jeremiah. Things are fine. What is your problem? And so they begin to call God's oracles the burden of the Lord. Like God is placing through Jeremiah some heavy thing. It's, it's a bit like, I'll say, yeah, I'll do this. So it's a bit like a, a child saying to you, um, Mom and Dad, it seems like all day long, all you've done is discipline me. And you say, well, it seems like all day long, all you've done is continue to rebel against me and do everything that you're not supposed to do, right? Or it's like the criminal who says, 
who's all mad at the police officers, every time he speaks to me, he speaks harshly to me. He's always putting me in these handcuffs. And the officer says, that's because you're always carrying a gun and holding up the convenience store. Right? And the judge is always speaking harsh things and putting me in jail. Well, that's because you keep robbing the convenience store. Right? Uh, you know, like it, it, but this is where they're at. Like they, they are continuing to run towards the cliff. And Jeremiah's only option is to scream right? The message of God, repent, turn around, stop. Of course, it seems like it's always intense, right? Because he's trying to spare their lives. It's like you would do for your child who's running out into the street and the car is coming. You would spare nothing, right? You 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 would scream and you'd holler and you'd begin to run. You'd do whatever it takes and your child might say, boy, that's a little harsh, dad, right? But they begin to mock it and make fun of it. And God says to them, I, whoever continues to mock my words and keeps saying the burden of the Lord, I am going to come, he says, and I'm going to visit that person. Because they are mocking the very life-saving message of God that he's proclaiming to them. They're making a mockery out of it. Oh man, what a picture of maybe even many of our lives prior to coming to Christ prior to us actually submitting our lives to him. So there's Jeremiah 23 in a helicopter view. Now, this is going to seem strange, but now we're going to stand and we're going to read a portion of it. We stand to read God's word. You're going, man, we're just getting warmed up, right? No, no, don't worry. We stand to read God's word because it is his word. Let us not be like Jeremiah's day. Let us not be like Judah and Israel. Let us be those who honor God, who see and hear his word and receive it with reverence, knowing that these are not man's words, but these are the very words of God to us. So hear hear the word of the Lord this morning. Chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and you have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but, but instead, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. 
Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I've found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like a slippery path in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I, say, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal. They led my people astray, Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you up with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually with those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? For behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. For the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned from their evil way and from, their ev- from the evil of their deeds. For am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Have I not, have I, I have heard what the prophets have said Uh, who have prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have a dream, I've dreamed. How, How long shall their lies be in their hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophets who who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What is straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongue, tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I pray that these words to those who would resist God in his presence. I pray that these words would call us to repentance and faith as Jeremiah intended for the people of Israel. And for those of us, God, today who who are the redeemed, who love you and who know you, God, may these words bring us incredible comfort and encouragement and exhortation today. And we ask this in the name of your son.
Amen. You can be seated. As you could hear, in one sense, this passage speaks for itself. (laughs) There are serious consequences to forgetting the character of God. Let me just list off about eight of them. You could could go through a whole bunch more, but I'm just going to rapidly go through them. The first consequence we see here of people, uh, when the leaders have forgotten about God, the first consequence is that the people are scattered, we've already said. The people are scattered about. Instead of bringing them in and them dwelling securely and being taken care of, the sheep are scattered all over the place, and ultimately they are driven to all kinds of different countries because of their sin. People are neglected. I love the, I don't love, but it, it's a sad statement about the shepherds in verse 32 where he says that they have not profited my people at all. Like that's a powerful statement spoken by God to shepherds to say the very point of a shepherd, right, is to attend to, to care for the sheep. And he says, they haven't profited and benefited my people at all. They've neglected them. And so people one of the consequences of forgetting who God is is we forget who his people are as well, and they are neglected in this case. Even the land is fruitless. Did you catch that? Even the land, it says, the pastures dried up and was fruitless, that our sinfulness and our rejection of God actually has environmental impact. (laughs) There you go. We could go into that later. Maybe Robert can help us with that one. Another consequence is God's word is set aside for man's wisdom. Did you catch that really obvious in the text? They're all dreaming dreams. They're all having a word that they're saying is from God. Everyone's saying, God God told me, God said to me, I had a dream last night, right? And God's saying, I didn't give you that dream. I didn't give you that word. And so they begin to trust their own selves, to lean on their own understanding and to trust their own intuition and their own impressions of what God is saying. They begin to trust in man's wisdom instead of turning to the very true word of God. God says, let the person who has a dream, he says, just let him tell the dream. But let him who has my word, let him declare it faithfully. Right? Let us us lean on the very truth of God's word as he has clearly declared who he is in his word. But because they had set aside God's word for their own wisdom, God even tells them, in fact, he says to them, don't even listen to these prophets. Like, stop listening to them because they are speaking lies. They are not teaching the word of God. They're not proclaiming God's word at all. They were trusting in their own wisdom they begin to smear and sneer and mock God's judgment, which I already said in verses 33 to 40. They actually, one of the consequences is the people forgot God as well. You see, the leaders had forgotten about God and set God and his word aside. And so as they were leading the people and teaching the people, the people also began to set God aside and they forgot his name even. Did you catch that? Taught them, led them to forget my name which is, in essence, saying to forget the very character and nature of God. And probably one of the sad things is that people remained in their sin as a result of this. Did you catch what, I, what Jeremiah says? He says, if, if they had stood in my counsel, in other words, if these so-called prophets and leaders had come before God and stood in the counsel of his word 
and then went out to the people and spoke the very word of God, the people would have turned from their sin. The people would have actually repented. It would have actually benefited. But he says, instead, as a result, the leaders who've forgotten God and forgotten the character of God, these leaders have instead actually strengthened the hand of sinners and actually led them to believe. People who, he says, are stubbornly following their own hearts. You ever heard that in our day? You just need to follow your own heart, right? right? Just do what you think is right, right? He says people who are stubbornly following their own hearts, he says they actually are telling them, hey, don't worry, all is well. People who are rejecting God's word, they're saying, hey, it's okay, don't feel bad. God loves you, it's all good. He says, but if you would have spoken my word, they would have turned away from their evil deeds. They would have put their faith in me. And so the ultimate consequence of this is judgment. They're going to be judged. God says, I'm going to judge them. It's his last resort. (laughs) He is going to thrust them into exile and they're going to be judged. And all because of this main problem of they've forgotten about the character of God. You see the significance of the consequences of forgetting the character of God? Think about this in your own life this morning. Think about how important this is. Chapter, er, verse 23 begins this little rhetorical questions that get to the heart of the problem. He says here, he says, am, through the prophet, God is saying to the people, am I, am I a God at hand and yet not a God far away? Do you catch the, the picture here? What he's saying is, have you, have you forgotten who I am? Do you think I'm a God who's actually here but not there? Do you actually think that somehow I'm a territorial God, which actually in their days, right, all the ancient gods were very much territorial gods. This is the way the culture would have thought. He's saying, but but that's not God. He's saying, you actually think that I'm here but not there. He says, can a man actually hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? In other words, he's saying, do, do you actually think that you can do things in secret to where God will not see That's called delusion, right? That's the the definition right there. They are living and thinking in a way that is not consistent with reality, that is not consistent with the very character of God, the very nature of reality of God. And the answer to all of these is obvious. No, no one can hide from me. Isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 139? Where can I go, God, from your presence? If I go up to the heights, you are there. If I go down in the valley, you're there. He says, even the darkness doesn't hide me, for even the darkness is as light to you. There's nowhere, the psalmist concluded, that I can go away from the presence of God because God is everywhere present all of the time. He says, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And then notice these words in verse 25. These are the scariest words of the text right here. I have heard. I have heard. In other words, You thought you were doing these things in secret. You thought you were speaking these false words and worshiping these false gods in secret. Guess what? I've heard it all. (laughs) Um, Let me give you an example how this looks. So I was thinking about this from my childhood. Uh, My brother and I, uh, my parents would always leave and go run errands in town, and they would leave us a list of of chores. And that was so that we wouldn't get in trouble, by the way. Uh, 
I'm sure your parents have done this or do this, right? So we had a big long list of chores so we'd keep busy and we wouldn't do stupid things. But as soon as my parents left one day, and most every time, <laughs> but as soon as my parents left, my dad had just bought one of these brand new Datsun hatchback cars, right? I don't know if any of you remember the Datsun hatchback two-door car. And uh, it was brand new, just had gotten it. And, uh, and so my parents left, and my, I would think I was like nine and my brother's like 11. We thought, we're going to take this baby for a spin, right? And so, so, now just to be clear, he was driving. I was an innocent bystander. And we get in this car, <laughs> right? And uh, hopefully he won't hear this tape. And uh, we, tape, we even have tape anymore. That's dating me right there. And so we, we start going down the hill from my farmhouse, and there's this gravel road, and we were, we were flying down this hill, and we lose control, of course, because we're 9-11. We don't know how to drive. We do know how to drive, but not that fast. And so we, we spun that thing around. We go into the ditch, and we pop the, the right side tires off, the, off this thing, right? Thankfully, we didn't roll it over. We just popped the tires off. It's not like anything bad happened, right? And so, so we had this grand idea, right? Because, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. So now we have to get out of trouble. So we call up this uh, Chuck Routon. Uh, I don't know why I remember the name, but Chuck, we call him up. Uh, because he's the guy that does, comes out to the farm when the tractor tire breaks down and stuff, and he fixes things like this, right? So, so we call his shop, and uh, we say, Chuck, you know, we got a problem out here. Some tires are flat. You know, can you come out and fix it? And to our surprise, like we didn't really think this was going to be a quick thing. To our surprise, he says, sure, I'll be right out. And we were like, oh, this is going to go well, right? He's going to come out. He's going to fix this. My parents are not going to know. So... We are down at the car waiting, and Chuck pulls up in his service truck, and we are excited that he came right away. Uh, I'm, I'm, we, we didn't think, see, that why he wouldn't question a 9- and 11-year-old, you know, for calling. <laughs> we, we didn't think about this. Uh, but when he gets out of the car, all of a sudden, my dad sets up in the passenger seat of the truck and gets out. You see, my dad was at the shop when we called. <laughs> and... It was, it was like the, you know, the, the color went out of our face. And all of a sudden, our plan, like we were busted, right? This is, this is pretty much the sense here in, in verse 25. Hey, guys, guess what? You thought you were doing this in secret? There is no such thing. I've heard all of it. I see everything you're doing in my temple where I'm supposed to be lifted up and my name is holy. I see it all. You haven't gotten away with any of it. He says, I have seen what the prophets have said and the lies that they proclaimed in my name. And he, he, he doesn't leave anything unturned. He says, you keep saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. He says, how long are you going to speak these lies? How long will you prophesy lies? Those of you who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts. So how is it that we return? What is it that actually brings us back? What is it that actually does sustain us in the midst of trials and temptations? What is it that will keep us from getting to this point in our own lives? What is it? He says in this passage, after he talks about the dreams, he says, let the prophet of dreams tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak it faithfully. And then he gives this comparison. For what does straw have in common with wheat? It's a great comparison, right? Um, the, no one, like, you don't prize the straw, even though it has incredible uses, right? And every farmer knows this. Like, 
the straw nowadays. We bale it. We use it for bedding for the cows. And we do all kinds of things with the straw. But that's not what makes the money, right? And that's not what feeds people, right? We know that, that it's, the, it's the grain, right? He's saying, what, what does the straw have in common with the grain? Like, it, 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 it's, it's, again, making this comparison of the own inconsistencies of their lives, the delusion that they were living in. He says, he says is not my word like a fire? You see, fire in the Bible was something that was used and still used to refine. It was something that was used to purify. And he says, my word is, that, is like a fire to you. It's that which purifies you. As you turn and you see my word and you read it and you understand it, it purifies your life. It, it dispels myths. It dispels all these inconsistencies. It destroys the delusion. He says, it's not my word like a hammer that breaks rocks, the rocks to pieces. God's word is that hammer that breaks through the hardness of our hearts that breaks through the, the inconsistencies and the unrepentance, the stubbornness of our hearts. It's God's word that actually does that. Now, I want to be cautious here because I think a lot of us as Christians have actually taken this passage. I've heard pastors say this, that we need to be, that, that we need to be hellfire and brimstone preachers, right? We need to just preach it boldly and, and you know, be, be, be the hammer. But listen, we're not the hammer. Do you catch that in the passage? I'm not the hammer that's supposed to beat you over the head with the word of God. God's word is the hammer. It's when his word is spoken, however it's spoken, it's when the word of God speaks that uh, the hardness of our hearts gets broken away, that the delusion gets dispelled, that things become clear, that transformed lives happen through the word of God, not through the power of the speaker and the preacher, but through the actual truth of God's word. I I think there are many Christians today who actually see themselves as the hammer. I don't know about you, but what transformed my life, and I'm guessing for you as well, was simply the absolute amazing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken to you in all different ways that it came to you. That truth, whether spoken softly or powerfully, however, that truth is powerful to change lives. How do we, how do we come back to God? What is the answer? It's to turn to God's word, to remember God, to remember his character, to remember his nature. If we, if we are those who forget the very character of God, we, we will be led to in a delusional direction. We will begin to live in ways, in fact, part of that delusion leads us to sin boldly. To sin really boldly. I, I won't tell that story. Ask me afterwards. Let me just give you a couple con- concluding thoughts about why this is so important to us. Number one, there's nowhere we can go to hide from God. He's everywhere. This is why the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart that there's no God. The fool actually goes and lives as if they will never have to give an account to a holy, righteous God. It's the fool who does this. You do so at your own peril. But there's another truth to this, a reality to this, is that is we don't always feel the presence of God, do we? We don't always feel it. Have you ever 
This is why there's many psalms, right? We went through the lament psalms that say, God, where are you? Why do you seem so far away? When the reality is, is that God is not far away. He's in every single nook and cranny, everywhere, all of him, all the time. But the reality is, is we don't always feel his presence. And that's why we turn to his word and we remind ourselves that even when we don't feel like he is close, it doesn't change the reality that he is. Third, God also reserves the right to make his presence known more or less at any moment to any individual or group of people. Sometimes you don't feel his presence because he's not making his presence known to you. But he is present. He reserves the right to make his presence known more or less in any moment of our lives. He also, even though he's present everywhere, he also manifests his presence in different ways in different times. Right? In Jeremiah 23, how is God present to the children of Israel? He is present to judge. That attribute His judgment and his wrath is what's being manifest in that moment. God comes to us in all kinds of ways, for all kinds of reasons. He manifests his mercy or his love. We may sense his presence through his love and his grace and sometimes through his discipline. But nevertheless, God makes his presence known or different parts of his character are known in different ways at different times. The reality of God's omnipresence ought to be an incredibly stern warning to the wicked. But it's not. We learn that from Jeremiah as well. They don't care. But it ought to scare the wicked person who's resisting the will of God to death. It ought to be a frightening thing. One commentator said this. He says, how terrible should the thoughts of this attribute be to sinners? How foolish it is to imagine any hiding place from the incomprehensible God who fills and contains all things and is present in every point of the world. When, when we have shut the door and made all darkness within to meditate or commit a crime, we cannot in the most intricate recesses be sheltered from the presence of God. If we could separate ourselves from, the sh- from our own shadows, we could not avoid his company or be obscured from his sight. The darkness and light, Psalm 139, are both alike to God. Hypocrites cannot disguise their sentiments from him. He is in the most secret nook of their hearts. No thought is hidden, no lust is secret, but the eye of God beholds this and that and the other. He is present with our heart when we imagine, with our hands when we act. We may exclude the sun from peeping into our solitude, but not the eyes of God from beholding our actions. The reality of God's being present in everywhere all the time should frighten the wicked. It should be a call and a cry to repentance today to come to Christ. But I want to say this to those of you who are saved this morning, those of you who know the reality of God's redemption. He says that the reality of God's omnipresence should comfort you and console you in every sorrow and trial and temptation that you face. This should be the greatest truth and reality that you cling to. Sam Storms said this, he says, no matter what the trial, no matter the place of its occurrence, no matter the swiftness with which it assaults us, no matter the depth of its power, God is ever with us, Psalm 46. His loving protection, all of him abides with us. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
And lastly, the reality of God's presence should give us great confidence as Christians. Incredible confidence that God is always, all of God, always acting according to his will for our good in every place, in everything. While we have limits, our God has no limits. And this is one of the reasons why he alone is worthy of our worship. Amen? So may you today go from this place and throughout your week and may you be comforted and consoled and have confidence because God, all of God is with you every single place you go and everything you will face. And if you're here today and you are resisting the presence of God and you are running away from his presence, then I pray that today's message is a call just like it was in Jeremiah's day to repent and to turn to God and to trust God to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And we turn now even to communion. And we do this as a means of reminding ourselves of what our God has done on our behalf. Reminding ourselves that our God sent his son Jesus to this earth to die on the cross. And we eat the bread today as a reminder that he absorbed in his body the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And we drink the cup today as a reminder that he shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And I just want to encourage you today that, that the communion is for believers. If you believe that truth, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death and hell on your behalf, if you believe that, then I invite you today to take communion. But if you don't believe that, Paul actually gives a warning. Don't eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Don't do this flippantly. Take it serious. Consider before God where you're at in your relationship with him this morning and then celebrate his goodness to you. I'm gonna have the worship team come. I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you.